0: I have to switch the uh, biblical question for this week. I have a brand new biblical question today. And that question is, which do you prefer, to save lives or to save the economy? Which do you prefer, to save lives or to save the economy? Brand new biblical question. And I'll tell you why as we move forward. Lots of talk about the um Chinese uh, virus, lots of talk about it. I have with me Dr. Mark Bruce. He is a Wisconsin-based emergency medical uh, medicine physician. He works in infectious diseases. He was um, he has worked in Central America, Europe, and was in Asia during the SARS outbreak. Dr. Bruce, thank you for coming on.
1: You're welcome, Jesse. Good to be with you.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, I want to try to get some clear and simple answers about the Chinese virus. So I really appreciate you coming on. First, people want to know, are we all going to die?
1: No, this isn't a death (laughs) sentence. As a matter of fact, currently, uh, out of everybody that's being tested, more than 90% of people in the United States uh, and more than 96% of people in South Korea are testing negative for this virus, which means that even if you have symptoms, those people are testing negative. Those that are testing positive, probably we think that the uh, mortality rate in the United States is going to land anywhere between 1% to 2%, which means that 99 to 98% of people that do Get infected with this virus are going to do just fine.
0: Amazing! This uh, this new medicine that they're talking about uh, possibly testing. Uh, do you th- do you know if that will work or not?
1: Well, th- there's uh, Jesse. You know the whole concept behind medical science is totally data driven, and since this is a novel virus, which means new. You know, prior to four months ago, we didn't even know that this existed or it didn't exist prior to that time, that we are scrambling every day to try and get more data on this virus. And what we've seen so far is that, yes, there are some reported effective treatments, specifically a malaria drug by the name of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine under the, the brand name of, of Plaquenil, which has been well known for 70, 80 years, in combination with either azithromycin, which is an antibiotic that uh, many people have taken before, and or also an AIDS drug by the name of remdesivir. Uh, So we have uh, a lot of hope in terms of treatment that is, uh, we think, going to be uh, more widely available but we need to get more data to know, first of all, who gets the drug, when do they get the drug, how long do they get the drug or the drug combinations, and for what period of time. Uh, so those are all of those type of decisions are data driven, particularly in light of the fact that all of these medications can have substantial side effects.
0: And um, a lot of people... Excuse me, a lot of people are afraid they don't trust the government. And so they think that this whole virus thing is and then this new medication that they're coming up with is part of the government takeover. And people don't trust medications from the government anymore. Um I remember when uh they were saying that I believe it was a flu shot or something that they wanted people to take into drug stores or anywhere. A lot of Americans, including myself, refused to take it. How should people feel about this drug coming up uh, that they're trying to come up for this virus now?
1: Well, Jesse, you know, I think that people are going to believe what they want to believe. But again, when you look at this from uh, as objective a perspective as you can, and you know, I'll tell you that all of us have bias. I think that it's really important that we recognize what our biases are and apply that as best we can with the minds that God has given us to uh, the, the whole uh, scientific evidence that we have. Again, the data that is available. Uh, I, I, I will tell you that I am very suspicious out of a lot of the data that we're receiving from China. Because China has significant constraints on both medicine and science, and they do that for political purposes. I think that that is much less of an issue with our government and with the Western governments. I think they are much more transparent and have just because of the whole uh, uh, governance model that we have in the Western world than what they do in a communist world. So, I, I, uh, I, having said that, I understand that a lot of people have anxiety about this. That anxiety is normal because this is something totally new. And so, when you're faced with something totally new that doesn't have uh, an established track record in terms of treatment, that anxiety is, is very natural.
0: Yeah. Um, why is it so – it seemed to be so bad in Italy? Why – what happened over there that – it's really affected a lot of folks
1: yeah, that's a great question, and I think that the answer the final answer to that is probably unknown i can I can tell you because I've traveled over there quite a bit right that the, the entire country is a, a much more densely populated country uh than what especially the northern part of the country where this was really got the traction uh, than what uh, a lot of areas of the United States. Having said that, we know the the uh, Dr. Margaret Harris yesterday announced she's a, a a World Health Organization spokesperson that 85 as of the increase in new cases on Monday of this week, uh, 85% of those cases came from the western world and out of those cases, well, there were 40% that actually came from the United States. But again, the brunt of those increases are occurring in very, very densely populated areas, uh, particularly in New York and uh, New York City out uh, in particular, and also in California, uh, where, again, the population density is, is much greater. So the other aspect of Italy is that they have uh, a socialized healthcare system that does not have the reserve medical resources that th- many other areas of the world have, particularly areas like uh, South Korea, some areas of Asia, and even the United States. And having said that, we are very concerned that this could easily overwhelm our current healthcare system and resources, too. And that's part of the reason why there's been such an emphasis on trying to contain this pandemic. Before it reaches that point of overwhelming the system, you know we're busy enough already with dealing with with uh, other medical issues, and to to divert all of our resources towards treating this viral infection, you know there's two thousand people in America today that are going to die of their heart disease, and if all of a sudden all the resources that we would normally have in terms of ICU beds and Uh, uh, medications, personnel resources, all those things are diverted to to treating a viral infection. You can imagine what's going to happen with that kind of mortality rate with all these other chronic diseases, not to mention uh, people that have complications related to their diabetes and other infectious issues, uh, and uh, down the list it goes.
0: Amazing. Should um, the rest of the country prepare for what New York is dealing with now?
1: Well, they should. I, and I'll, I'll give you a, a good example of that, Jesse. There's the simple math that, that we can apply to this. We know that, again, from our own country's experience and also other countries' experience, that one person who has COVID-19 will typically infect three other people unless this is contained. So if you do the simple math on that, in 14 days, that one person if this goes unchecked, will potentially infect four point seven million people.
0: That's amazing. So if you're not having any symptoms, you don't feel sick, you're not sick. And um but you could have it and not what should a person do if I mean should they self quarantine or if they don't have it, they don't feel sick. They're doing well. They're in good health condition. Should that person stay home?
1: I don't think so, Jesse. I think that that many times there can be an overreaction that is uh, sometimes worse than the disease itself. Right. And, you know, I think I, I heard at the beginning of your pro this segment here. You're talking about, uh, you, do you save lives or do you save the economy? Right. And I think, that, I think that our government uh, is really trying to find the balance between that. I don't think it has to be one or the other, and I think that they're trying to find the balance. But I'll tell you that I, my advice to patients, especially uh, younger patients, is that we realize that there is a defined, at-risk, very vulnerable population. And that is an older population, especially older population of people that have chronic disease. Having said that, we know that there's a lot of people that are younger and have no risk that can still be very, uh, very affected by this and even die. Now, we look at the Italian statistics, and there was 1% of people that died that were young and did not have chronic disease. So there's, again, this is uh, one aspect of this disease that we're trying to figure out is why does that happen? And that probably has to do something with that individual patient and the way that they manufacture or allow that RNA virus to replicate itself. Maybe there's host factors that really have a profound impact on that. And they may have had perhaps uh, another cold or some type of illness that knocked down their own immune response and allowed this to overwhelm them. Yeah. You know, so what, what, what I tell patients, I'm sorry to interrupt you and step on you there, Jesse, but what I tell patients is you do the things that are prudent precautions. You wash your hands a lot. You cover your mouth. When you cough, you clean surfaces. You know, if you've been coughing or sneezing around something, you keep yourself well hydrated. You get good rest. You kind of do all the things that your mother told you to do whenever you got a cold.
0: Right. We should already be doing those things anyway. Wash it out of hand, put our hands over mouth when you cough and all those things. You know, one thing that is happening in America is that you have the uh, liberal media, the Democrats and others who hate the president. And so whenever he says something or when they mention this virus, they blame it on him. Or like the other day, he said that he hoped to have be back or come back to work around Easter, right? And so now right. the Democrats and others are saying, "No, that's not right. We can't do that." So we're getting a double message, and people don't know what to believe. It seems to be more political thing than it than everybody being on water court about what's really happening. You can't trust the media, and some people who hate the president do not trust him. Do you think that's a, I mean, isn't that going to cause more confusion about what people should do?
1: It's really a sad state of affairs, isn't it, Justin? Yeah, yes. Uh, I, I, again, it goes back to people are going to believe what they want to believe. And, you know, I've heard it said that if the president cured cancer, that they would, they would take issue with that. Right. And, and, and so I, I, I think that there is such animus, such hatred. That is clearly not a, a, a biblical or godly perspective in which we are to pray for our our leaders. Yeah, and we are we are to respect authority, and we we see that just totally cast aside by by the the groups that you just mentioned.
0: And and it's just crazy because. You would think that they would put that aside until all this is taken care of. But the hatred is overwhelming them. They cannot do the right thing. I want to know. I see a lot of people walking around with those mask things on. And it makes it look like they have the disease. Should we be concerned about that?
1: You know, when I was traveling in Asia during the SARS epidemic back 17, 18 years ago, Uh, I'll tell you this story. I saw this panic up close and personal with SARS. Right. And uh, everybody, uh, and you still see this, even whenever there's not any kind of disease process, many Asians, whenever they get on an airplane, will put a mask on. (laughs) The mask does two things. First of all, it does inhibit droplet spread. In other words, the things that are coming out of your mouth, basically it'll catch. And that is a significant vector of transmission for this particular virus, is droplet spread. But it does a second thing, and that is the people that are wearing a mask, it doesn't let you touch your own nose, because that is the second thing that happens, is that you touch a surface that has the virus on it and touch your mouth or your nose, you've just self-inoculated yourself. Having said that, there are a lot of unique characteristics about this virus that make those masks somewhat of limited utility. Uh, if you are in a high-risk environment, or you are uh, such as uh, in a crowded waiting room or a crowded space where you know we're not supposed to gather with more than ten people now, but if you're find yourself in a situation like that, or you are in the presence of somebody that has substantial vulnerability and risk if they were to get this virus, then in those circumstances, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to do. But for everybody to go out and get a mask, I, I think, is, is uh, a little bit on the crazy side.
0: <laughs> I agree. Um, I want to take a call for you, but I want to ask, in California and New York, but especially in California, there, there are a lot of homeless people now. They are everywhere. And uh illegal aliens and others all over the streets what 's going to happen with those folks concerning the coronavirus situation they if they heal the people who are normal, won't the homeless people still have it
1: uh absolutely i mean those are the those are people that again bear a significant risk because many of those homeless people don 't have very good health to begin with right. And they may be having some type of chronic disease or current infection uh, that uh, they may not even know about because they don't see a doctor. They are not connected to the healthcare system. And so they are uh, a very much at risk population, both not only for themselves, but for propagating this virus. And like I said uh, a few minutes ago, one person can in two weeks technically caused 4.7 million infections. That's
0: amazing. You like do you like the way the president is handling this?
1: You know, I really do and I like the team that he's surrounded himself with. Uh, these are these are uh, uh Dr. Fauci's one of my heroes. I mean, this guy is, you know, he's 79 years old. He's still seeing patients. He's a brilliant guy. I I think that they are doing Quite frankly, from my perspective as a clinician and knowing a little bit about this virus and having experienced a coronavirus epidemic, not pandemic, but epidemic with SARS, I, I think that they're doing all the right things.
0: Amazing. Yeah, I like the way he sounded. I trust the president, so I really like his team as well. I like the way he's dealing with it. Uh, in Los Angeles, Mayor garcera is moving the homeless people into community centers to protect them from the virus. Uh, That's what CBS News is reporting now. One last thing I got to ask, and then we're going to go to the calls. Um, They are telling people to stay at least six feet apart from one another. Is that a good idea?
1: It is, Jesse, and I'll tell you why. The first rule of any epidemic is to protect the uninfected. That's how you contain an epidemic and keep it from becoming a pandemic and that is how once a pandemic is present how you are able to contain the pandemic is by protecting the uninfected one of the things that we know about this virus is that it's easy to get uh, it's not as this this will sound kind of crazy to you but uh, it's not as easy to get as what measles is the average person that has measles will infect not three people but anywhere between 12 to 18 people. So measles can become epidemic. The the nice thing that we have about measles is that there is good herd immunity, which means that enough people have been vaccinated or have had measles that they have the uh, memory, their body immunologic system has the memory of what this looks like and can manufacture antibiotics against it. We don't have that right now. We don't have that same herd immunity with COVID-19. And we know that there's probably uh, this virus can survive in the air uh, for minutes to hours. Some studies have indicated for as long as three hours. And so there may be this kind of cloud around somebody and static air that would uh, allow that if you walk through that cloud that's around that person just breathing the virus, there's potential for being uh, infected by that.
0: That is so weird because we're fighting something that we can't see. And uh, if you can't see it, a lot of times it's hard for people to believe that it exists because they really can't see it. Exactly. Exactly. Mind-blowing. I want to go out to Pennsylvania and talk to Ava real fast. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ava, you're on with Dr. Bruce.
2: Hey, good morning, Jesse. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. How are you?
1: Good morning, Ava.
2: Um, I'm actually a nurse, and I work in the nursing homes and the hospitals. And I've noticed that in certain facilities, it's actually been telling the nurses not to wear masks. So I just wanted to get your take on that. I still wear my mask, but I just feel safer. Like I'm protecting the patients and myself, but um, some facilities are actually like hiding the sanitizer and the masks from the nurses. <laughs> so yeah, could that definitely be a problem? Like, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that, that does not sound like good policy to me. I mean, you're working in a high risk environment and uh, around a lot of people that are older and with chronic diseases, I will tell you that my practice in the emergency department is uh, I will routinely, uh, when I first go in to see a patient, I will have at least a surgical mask on. I, I will not have my N95 mask, uh, which is, you know, fit tested and a much tighter mask that is much safer for uh, avoiding the the aerosolization that we see with any kind of uh, viral uh, illness, but I will wear that loop surgical mask uh, in my even if I'm going in to see something somebody that may have uh, a non-respiratory issue, even like a uh, you know a, a, a broken limb or uh, a, a laceration, something along those lines, because I don't know what that person has been exposed to. And so exactly. I will I will routinely, you know, I wash my hands going in the room, I wash my hands coming out of the room, and I will have a mask on, again, because both of us are working in those high-risk environments. I think that those are prudent precautions. Having said that, we used to have stacks of masks outside of the doors of every treatment room. We've had to remove those simply for the fact that patients and their families would take the entire stack of masks with them. And so it got us to where we didn't have the necessary uh resources in terms of that that type of thing uh-huh. to protect ourselves and to protect our staff. So we had to remove those and so but we have those in strategic locations that are accessible to our staff.
2: Okay, yeah, my facility is kind of on lockdown where visitors are no longer allowed, so it's just the like the residents, the nurses and the doctors, but at the same time they still have admissions. So right. no one knows what the admissions might have and no one knows, you know, where the employees were, no one knows um who in the employees house might possibly have been exposed, so
1: Right. It's crazy. Ava? I, I, I would tell you that I don't think that's a very good policy.
0: Ava, thanks for your call. I appreciate that. It's awful. Awesome. Thank you. All right. What do you think of the uh, letting prisoners out into the community? And from what I know, prisoners are not affected by this, this thing so far. Is that a good idea to let them out into the communities again?
1: No, I don't think so. And, and again, you want to take the precautions, the same precautions that we, you would take in a nursing home in terms of those that are providing the, the care and support for those prisoners within their confinement to be sure that they are uh, healthy and that they would not be potentially transmitting uh, the, the disease to those, that, uh, that population. I will tell you that once it does once they do have cases that are recognized in those circumstances that uh, that can be certainly a problematic. but I haven't seen uh, uh, widespread uh, I haven't seen any case of a prison basically having this this uh, this type of illness. Uh, become pandemic or epidemic within that facility. Right. I think it's kind of more of a reaction to, gee, what might happen if somebody does get sick here?
0: And my final question for you, doctor, from online. Someone want to know, is it true 85% of infected show no symptoms?
1: It's actually it's actually higher. It's probably at least that level. Uh, there, If they do have symptoms... The symptoms that they're going to have are mild to moderate. I mean, they may get sick, but they certainly would not require hospitalization. It would be like uh, a bad cold or a flu if they do get ill. Uh, and, but, and we know that this has spared uh, a pediatric population almost completely. And so those, uh, the problem, again, is that you have grandchildren those grandchildren getting around their grandparents can actually be a vector of transmission. They can have it, but can be certainly asymptomatic. But it's not unusual. The, the, the challenge with this, Jesse, is that this virus, you can be infected and shedding this virus days to weeks before you do become symptomatic. Whereas SARS, Uh, And MERS, also, both of those, both corona epidemics that we've seen in the last uh, two decades, you became symptomatic before you started shedding the virus, before you started becoming contagious. Mm. So that's the challenge with COVID-19, is that you can have this anywhere between two to 37 days. The average is about five days before you become infected and start shedding virus. But that's a lot of time that you have before it, where you could potentially be infecting other people.
0: Amazing, Doctor Mark Bruce. Um, is there a website? Anything you want to give out for the folks?
1: You know, I think the uh, the website that you see on the daily briefings that the president is giving is pretty good. Uh, there's a, 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 and you can link to that. But the, the CDC.gov website is very good, or the coronavirus dot gov website is also excellent and can keep people up to date in terms of what's happening. Uh, The information that is posted on those websites lags just a little bit by current reporting. Amazing. Dr.
0: Mark Bruce, thank you so much for coming on with us. I absolutely appreciate it. Any final advice for everybody?
1: Jesse, I think all of us need to be on our knees praying about this that God would protect our country, that God would give our li- our, our, our leaders wisdom in this, and that uh, we would be united as a people. Uh, and, you know, I've been praying for a revival in this country for a long time, and I don't know if God will use this as a, as a, a, a way to spur a revival, but if he does, so be it.
0: That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I absolutely appreciate it, and we'll talk again.
1: All right, Jesse. All right.
0: Uh, Dr. Mark Bruce there from Wisconsin. Amazing. Amazing. I got to take a quick break. Back in a moment. Amazing. And don't forget to like, follow, tweet, subscribe, and share the Jesse Lee Peterson radio show folks. We really appreciate it. We are at war. And it's a spiritual battle for the soul of America. And it's going to take all of us to do it.